Good morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning, it comes from two places, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, and Galatians 6, 14. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord to us, Jeremiah 9, starting in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In Galatians 6, verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. All right, you may have a seat. Good morning, brothers and sisters. All right, so we are going to start this series um, through 1 Corinthians this morning, um, which we've sung chapter one already um, in, in those songs that we sung, which was really great, very appropriate. I hope you'll see how appropriate um, as we walk through chapter one. Um, so we're going to be in this book for maybe a little over four months, something like that. We'll see how the Lord leads. But at this point, we're going to kind of take a chapter per week um, on that pace. And the only chapters that I foresee might be different are chapters 11 and 15. Probably take two weeks on those too. So um, anyway, in your own reading, as you're kind of following along, um, that's about the p- pace that we'll, we'll plan on taking. And this series title is Cruciform Living. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, what well, means that this book is all about our lives being formed around the cross in the sense that Jesus needs to be at the center of our lives. And then also that our lives would be formed by the cross. So formed around the cross because Jesus is at the center, the cross is at the center. But also the cross, the power of the cross shapes how we live, um, shapes our values and our perspectives and our priorities. And um, again, you'll see this as we walk through the book, how central this is to Paul's thoughts, God's thoughts for us. So if you think about it, we are all shaped by something or a number of things. We're shaped by other people. The shape and the pattern of our lives reflect what we value. So if you think about your life, if I think about mine, it really doesn't take any effort for me to, to live a life shaped by selfishness and pride. That's not very hard, okay? We're really good at living for ourselves and doing what makes us look good. comes pretty naturally. It's also pretty easy to evaluate others on the basis of what they can do for us. Again, selfish orientation. But it takes power, on the other hand, to not get sucked in and conform to a way of thinking and living with ourselves at the center. It's why Paul writes in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It takes something radical to transform us. It takes the gospel 
of Jesus, the cross of Christ. That's the radical something that can change us. So the cross is the weakness of God that is more powerful than any human strength. I mean, I was just thinking of it as we sung, which song was it? Um, In Christ alone. This is the power of the cross. I mean, it seems like here's this weak Savior just being tacked onto a cross in defeat. But what is going to bring you to a place of no guilt in life? What can deal with your guilt and your shame and your regret? Only the cross of Jesus is powerful enough to do that. And what can bring you to a point where you've got no fear in death? Do you know how much of our society and and just our lives are driven by the fear of death? How powerful that is? What is more powerful than the fear of death? I mean, vitamins aren't going to do it. Exercise isn't going to do it. You know, whatever. I mean, on and on and on. But the power of the cross can do it. So here, this weakness of God, many people scoff at the cross, is actually more powerful than any human strength. And the cross is the foolishness of God that confounds and humbles the most intelligent and shrewd. Okay, so when we trust in Jesus, when we follow him and not the Pied Pipers of the world, the cross shapes us. And that's what we want, it's what we need, it's what we're after here. That's what our passage is all about. And we're going to see in chapter 1 two primary things that the cross produces, shapes in us. It produces humility and it produces unity. So that's what we're going to see in chapter 1 this morning. So first off, the cross shapes gospel humility. Look at verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that's in Corinth and to those those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see it? You see how the cross and the grace of God produces humility? It's already here in these first two verses. What in the world were these Corinthians doing in the church of God? So um, in, in recent years, a new term has been coined, Californication, <laughs> sadly, because of some things that may be typical about Um, certain dynamics, sexual ethics in that state, although it's not obviously just California. Well, that was kind of like Corinth. They were known for their sexual immorality. So what in the world are these people doing in the church of God? I mean, if you know anything about the rest of the letter, there's a lot of mess in the church in Corinth. Pretty motley crew. And they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're set apart as holy, belonging to God. They are those called to be saints, not just Mother Teresa types. So we've got to make sure we don't just hold it out at arm's length. We've got to personalize this. What in the world are you and I doing in the church of God that's in Wilmington? What am I, what am I doing here? I mean, we were all spiritually dead in our sins. We're cosmically mutinous. That's what sin is. I mean, unless God is willing to kind of bless our desires, 
we revolt against, against him naturally. We want our will to be done on earth as it is in our own mind. And by nature, if we believe in God at all, we use him as a tool to get what we really want. We don't naturally seek him as the great treasure of our lives. We're like, uh, you've heard me say this before, we're like, we'd be like a woman who receives the ring from her loving fiancé And once she gets the ring, she tells him to push along because she's got what she wants. What are you talking about? The ring is just a token of, like, it's all about this loving relationship, you and me. Well, God gives us all of these gifts, and we just say, okay, thank you. Could you move along? That's all of us naturally. So, um, again, what are we doing here? This week on uh, Facebook, so Rachel Metzger wrote this article about, um, you know, caring well for our teenagers in the church, and I posted it because I thought it was a good article, wanted other people to read it. Well, a friend of mine from high school writes um, the same day and says, quote, (laughs) what does it say about having parties in the woods and getting drunk with your friends, LOL? I think that means laugh out loud, not lots of love. Um, So, I don't know if he read the article or not. I don't think so. But the point, I think, was probably, oh, you're like, you know, promoting all this Christianity stuff. I wonder if everybody knows about what you were like in high school. So, that's great. I don't have anything to hide. Um, It's the whole point. What am I doing here? That's who I was for a couple years in high school. So what am I doing up here as a preacher? What are you doing? I mean, I mean, we've all got our baggage, right? We've all got our history, our past. What are we doing in the Church of God in Wilmington? How did we end up here? Well, we were called, right? This is, I mean, look at this. To the Church of God that's in Corinth, that was sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, This is the effectual calling that's written of in Romans 8. Listen to Romans 8. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Okay? We're righteous in God's sight by faith. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So nobody gets lost between those phrases. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, right? Now, some of you might have your theological antennae up at this point. (laughs) That smells like Calvinism, you know? And that just means we're marionettes on a string. That just means we're robots. And you know what might happen is you might check out here or be on guard and you would miss this humbling and gratitude and joy-producing grace that we're supposed to savor in this chapter. So I don't want you to miss it, so let's just forget about the labels, Calvinism, Arminianism. Let's just let the Bible speak, okay? Let's listen and embrace this because this is enough to thrill your soul and shape you. So those of you who might identify more as Arminians might hold this out at arm's length a bit. B 
because you're suspicious that I might be trying to prove Calvinism to you. But then there could be those who identify more as Calvinists, and they might smile and say, amen, you know. And this text could reinforce theological or spiritual pride. Like, what a crazy oxymoron that is. Instead of humbling you to the dust, that's the point of this passage. So let's just ditch the labels, and let's all just sit here and receive this soul-shaking, kind of pride-crushing truth in this text. Because guess what? God wants to give us this morning grace and peace. That's what he wants to give you this morning. Look at verse 3. Grace to you. The messy church in Corinth. Grace to you. Peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the agenda for this letter. (laughs) I hope you're not pushing back on that agenda. But welcoming it, receiving it. Let's welcome the humility, the unity-producing grace of this book, of the cross, and watch the grace of God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, and shape us to be more like Jesus. So God, uh, Paul goes on to speak of this grace that's ours in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him. Have you ever heard that acronym, grace for grace? G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Sounds like it comes from right here. The grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, he paid for it, his death on the cross in our place, that in every way you were enriched in him. In him. Okay? So, again, this is humbling stuff. It produces humility. The gospel produces humility. God's riches at Christ's expense. So you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. If you're familiar with the book, we're going to hit on that in chapters 12 and 14. Um, Let's read on here. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the grace that calls us. It's the grace that justifies us. It's the grace that sustains us. It's the grace that will see us all the way home, all the way to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ's return. So past, present, and future grace is being laid out here, and it's intended to humble us, to produce this humility in us, this happy, thankful, joyful kind of humility. What in the world am I doing here? I was called. It's all of grace from beginning to end. So wherever in our lives we're giving way to pride, self-pity, you know, self-pity is just wounded pride, giving way to complaining, when we're lacking in joy and gratitude, what's happened is we've lost sight of the cross. We're being shaped by something else, some other priority, some other values. So we are desperately in need of of the cross at the center of our lives, not only to become a Christian, though certainly that's how we become Christians, trusting in Jesus as our Savior who died in our place on the cross, but also to live every day like a Christian. We do that by grace, by the power 
of the cross. We need the cross of Christ at the center so that the grace of the gospel shapes us and produces this happy humility that displays the truth about who God is and what he's done. So look at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called. Once again, he brings up this idea of calling. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this little section starts with calling and it ends with calling. Paul isn't done with the issue of calling. He wants the Corinthians in their pride and in their kind of divisions and factionalism to consider their calling. And we would do do well to do the same. So look down at verse 26. And we'll see how he wants us to consider our calling. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Okay, so do you hear the scripture reading? The, an echo of Jeremiah 9 in this? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Not many of you were wise. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Not many were powerful. Do you see the parallels? Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Not many were of noble birth. Back in that day, (laughs) it was a bit harder to be a self-made man, person, okay? And oftentimes, wealth came with noble privilege. And and there was kind of like old money. You, You know what I'm saying? So anyway, those associations are there. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Okay, so again, if we give way to pride, we've lost sight of reality. If we, if we give way to gather with some little tribe or clique, if we end up looking down on others, we've lost sight of reality. The cross shapes humility in us, and the cross is intended to shape unity among us. So all at once, it puts us in our place, humbles us, and yet it also lifts us up. It assures us of who we are, whose we are. Like, if we're proud, who do you think you are? It humbles us. If we are insecure, it's, do you know whose you are? So look at how verses 27 and 29 answer this question. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So do you think you're so smart? Do you think you're so strong? Do you think you're so special? No, we're nothing. God didn't choose you or choose me because we're so special because we were smarter or more gifted or more spiritually sensitive or, man, we would just be such an asset to his team. You know, like, I'm going to pick you first. No, he set his affection on us based on nothing in us. That's why it's called mercy. It's why it's called grace. So the gospel humbles us, puts us in our place, but the gospel assures us of our place. With him, it assures us of whose we are. God, God chose you. He chose you. Like, how soul-securing and sweet is that? You might get marginalized or rejected left, right, and center, but 
If you know that God, not because of anything in you, but just because of his mercy and compassion, he just chose you, like, and there's nothing that can separate you from his love, how sweet is that? Sheer mercy. He could have easily, just as easily not done it, not chosen you. I mean, it's a breathtaking reality if you actually let it sink in, you swallow it, it humbles us to the dust. I mean, we can end up spending so much oxygen throughout our lives complaining, why me? Like, throw me a bone, you know? Like, come on. And yet, if we are Christians, if we've been forgiven of an infinite debt, if we've been brought from spiritual deadness to spiritual life, eternal life, if we've been reconciled to God, our Father, nothing can separate us from his love. If all of God's very great and precious promises are ours, if we have a living hope that can't be killed even by death, and we have an eternal inheritance that's kept in heaven for us and it, it won't perish, spoil, or fade, if all that is ours on account of absolutely nothing that we've done, the only thing we bring to the table is debt, then we should tremble with joy and say, not, why me? Why me? Why me? Why did you pour out such grace on me? Like, I'm so convicted of how lightly I treat this grace. So I didn't, this is not my notes. I'm going to throw it in there anyway. So Beth lost her purse this week. Oh, should I do this? Um, And we just were like, oh, man, this isn't good. Thought maybe she left it at the grocery store or something, called the grocery store, a couple days, checking activity, nothing's happening. Oh, maybe they're going to do identity theft, and they're not going to use the cards, but then they're going to use the information that they get to do. And should we stop everything? And, you know, it's just like she feels terrible. I feel bad for her. Like, you know, all the hassle of, and not only do you have to stop everything and start a new card and number and everything, you got to, like, Everything online that you do, you got to reset everything, new card number. It's just a big pain in the butt. Neck. Okay. So all of that stuff, and we were about to pull the trigger, you know, should we do identity theft insurance? And, you know, we're about to pull the trigger to shut everything off on Friday. And, you know, there's this, uh, she was subbing a sweet teacher that came and prayed, you know, just in faith. The Lord. <laughs> anyway, so I drive home because I had to stop home to get something and then pick up the kids at school on Friday. And I look over there, and it's in the grass <laughs> between our driveway and the next, what, like, what? And I run over. I was, like, giddy because I know how much of a burden this was on her. I'm, everything's there. It's all scattered on the ground. I have no idea. I, I don't know. Anyway, I have some theories, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, so it's all scattered the cash there wasn't that much thankfully you know a couple of gift cards credit cards everything's there i was giddy like i was really happy like i probably haven't been that happy in a while and i was just thinking man i'm not this happy about redemption very often and and oh, it's so much greater So, in light of all this wonderful, humbling grace, 
verses 30 and 31 is a fitting conclusion to the chapter. Look at verse 30. And because of him, not because of you, not because of me, not, nothing in me, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us by grace, wisdom from God. We sung of it. Why is the cross power and wisdom to you rather than foolishness and weakness? Because you're so spiritually perceptive? No. Because God flipped the light switch on and like woke you up. He became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness. Why in the world is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? If you're in Christ Jesus, why? Because you, you know, did something for the judge on the way into your court hearing? No. Because Jesus took the fall. The lash fell on him. So you're right. There's no condemnation. Righteous, justified in the court of heaven. No appeals. If, if God justifies, who can condemn? Sanctification. You're set apart. You have a positional status of set apart and holy, and he's continuing to conform you to that, make you holy by his grace. Redemption, deliverance from slavery. All of this because of him. We are in Christ Jesus. He became to us all of these things by his grace. So that, what are we going to do, boast? <laughs> like, what are we going to do, be proud of us being better than somebody else? No, it's all of grace. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Where are you left but to boast humbly in the Lord? Do you remember how Jeremiah 29, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 9 ends, that little section that Tyler read, verse 24 says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. The cross is God's most profound act of steadfast love and justice and righteousness, and the cross is actually how we come to know the Lord. So again, we can only boast in grace. We point away from ourselves to the one who really did it. No room for boasting before God or others in what we've done, who we are, every reason to boast or glory in what God has done. So Galatians 6.14, far be it from us, yes, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. No room for pride, no room for a sense of superiority over anyone. We're humbled to the dust, and we can't help but praise the one who saved us. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, do you think you're somebody? <laughs> like, our pride is so insidious, it rises up left, right, in so many subtle and blatant ways. I mean, do you get easily offended? Do you feel slighted often? You tend to look down on other people. You have kind of a hair trigger on your criticism gun. Who do you think you are? Consider your calling. It's all of grace. 1 Corinthians 4, we'll get to this later, but verse 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What makes you and I any different? Only 
grace. So the cross shapes gospel humility in us. This is the cruciform living that 1 Corinthians calls us to. But there's also the security that the gospel brings. Do you think you're a nobody? Do you feel like a nobody? If you're in Christ, you've been chosen by God, by grace. Verse 9, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. He's our Father now. So we're going to close with a song this morning, later. Um, This is the end of point one. Um, (laughs) But it's so appropriate. I love that Beryl chose this song for us, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I'm just going to read a few lines here. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch that was doing really stupid things in high school in the woods with his friends. And I still do stupid things like value a found purse more than being a found sinner. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Yes. So the cross shapes gospel humility in us, and it also, second point, the cross shapes unified gospel community among us. Okay? So we've already seen unity touched on in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The the Corinthians thought they were really special. They needed to know that (laughs) there's lots of people that are blessed and sanctified and called. Okay, So even the, the humble unity is being pointed at here in the way that Paul opens up the book. And then it's on that basis that Paul appeals to the Corinthians For the sake of this cruciform unity, look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the center. He's what produces the unity. I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in. That word is used of mending nets and sometimes preparing and restoring or or bringing something to completion. So it's weaving you be, you be woven together in the same mind and the same judgment. This does not mean that all of us should be Steeler fans, although that would be a really good thing, of course. Um, this does not mean that we should all agree on whether to buy Apple or PC or Android or whatever. It means that we should be unified in matters having to do with the cross. It means that they should, we should keep the main thing the main thing and that we should be humbly unified around the cross of Christ. So this was obviously a problem in Corinth, and it can be a problem among us. So look at verse 11. Here's the problem. It comes to Paul by way of a report. 
For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter, or I follow Christ. The really spiritual ones would say, I follow Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Isn't that great? I love it. <laughs> I mean, how human and authentic the Bible is. God inspired it this way. Inspiration doesn't mean some magical trance-like dictation, you know. There, it came through the personality of the authors. Anyway, end of the sidebar there. Okay, so verse 10 Remember this, Paul was calling for unity and agreement and no divisions and united in mind and judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is, again, the Corinthians were shaped too much by their culture, their world, earthly values around them, and not enough by the cross. So in Greco-Roman culture, at the time, rhetoric or oratory was like one of the main forms of entertainment. Okay, so these traveling speakers would kind of come into town, set up the soapbox, and wow the audiences, and the better you were, the more money you could command. And, you know, today our sons and daughters want to be like baseball players or singers. Back then, those would be the, the people you wanted to emulate. Okay? So wisdom and persuasive speech was highly esteemed. And you know what? There were tools to this trade. The goal was persuasion, and so orators would employ all their tools to achieve their desired end. Okay, they wanted to entertain and persuade, to win and impress their audiences, and that was too much still present in the Corinthians' heart, in their value system. So Paul says it's dangerous to be shaped by those values. That's what's creating these factions among you. I follow Paul. Well, have you heard of Paulus? I mean, this is an eloquent man. Acts 18 talks about that. I follow Peter. Well, I, I follow Christ. You know, you have all this factionalism. Like what? And Paul's like, what are you talking about? Is Christ divided? Like, we're all just servants. So Paul's a highly educated man. He's actually a very gifted speaker. The point of what he's saying here is not that Christian preachers should be bad speakers. Okay, the issue is not anti-eloquence, like eloquence is a bad thing. The issue is he refused, and we'll look at this more next week in chapter 2, he refused to use manipulative means. He refused to kind of aim at impressing people and winning people by his wisdom or eloquence. Okay, because if you actually succeed in that, if you win people by your oratorical power rather than the power of the gospel, then you empty the power, you empty the cross of its power. Okay? So, thus, if you just reject all of that and the cross shapes your values, Christ shapes your values, then all of that factionalism goes away. You see it? So I love this story about Charles Spurgeon. He's a famous preacher in London in the 1800s, um, but he had this kind of gospel humility and rejected that kind of factionalism. So I love this. He, he recounts a story of when he was running late to a preaching engagement, and he says this. He says, 
talks, talk, he's actually talking about his grandfather, because I guess his grandfather was a preacher too. So it happened that I reached the appointed place considerably behind time, late. Like sensible people, they had begun their worship and had proceeded as far as the sermon. As I neared the chapel, I perceived that someone was in the pulpit preaching. And who should the preacher be but my dear and venerable grandfather? I mean, Spurgeon was really famous, okay? Like he, it's amazing what God did through him in his short life. He saw me as I came in at the front door and made my way up the aisle, and at once he said, Here comes my grandson. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a a better gospel. Can you, Charles? Anyway, so he's like, Ah, you can preach better than I can. You just go on. And he obviously, anyway. But the whole point is, can't preach a better gospel. The gospel is the gospel is the gospel. Okay? And when we elevate style and preference higher than it should be, it ends up dividing us rather than uniting us like we ought to be under the Christ, under the cross. So what divides churches? What kills Christianity? It's selfish, prideful elevation of earthly values and preferences to like a level of like a test of godliness. It really doesn't take much. It can happen. Maybe you've been in churches where this has happened and it's ugly. Disunity is a result of someone or something other than Jesus being at the center. Thankfully, there's something stronger than disunity. It's the power of the cross. The cross can kill factionalism. Jesus is strong enough to shape unity in our church. So, produces humility. It also produces unity. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. Russell already quoted Tozer, so you get two for the price of one this morning. All right. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. The body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. And that's what the book of Corinthians is aiming at, bringing health to the body by the power of the cross producing humility and unity that reflects the truths of the gospel. So Paul is saying, enough with this tribalism. You know, perhaps perhaps it was actually based on what leader baptized you. Do you see what he says in verse 17? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's addressing these worldly categories of evaluation And he doesn't want their values to be shaped more by the culture than by the cross. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, so here's the power of the cross. All disunity factionalism means that we've made these minor differences, major distinctions, and gospel unity is based on the only ultimate distinction or division that matters in the end, whether you are perishing or whether you're being saved. That's the, those are the two categories. 
not, well, I follow this guy, and I like this guy, and I follow... This is the division that matters, is whether or not the cross is central and you're being saved. Okay, so when we accept the word of the cross and are saved, the unifying power of the cross is greater than all the other distinctions that can divide us, whether it's rich, poor, black, white, Democrat, Republican, educated, uneducated, blue-collar, white-collar, rural, urban, geek, jock, young, old, introvert, extrovert, vegan, omnivore, organized, disorganized, type A, type B, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, we can just so easily fracture on all these secondary things because people just aren't like us. Like, whoa, if anywhere... There ought to be unity across all kinds of lines. It's in the church because the cross is the power to do that because all those other things are so secondary compared to the ultimate distinction. So this is all about keeping the main thing, the main thing we dare not be more impressed by or formed by style preferences, you know, forming allegiances that create factions and whatnot. If we make secondary things the main thing, you know, if your real passion is this and you just kind of give lip service to the cross, then you're going to get offended if so-and-so doesn't embrace your view. And you'll find your little tribe and just hang with them. And And the cross aims to kill that kind of disunity. Verse 19, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater or the orator, like I mentioned before, of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, ironic, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So all these worldly criteria, impressiveness and success, it's ultimately worthless. If we rely on it, here's what... Here's what that's tantamount to. It's like believing that the gospel is actually kind of weak, and so we need to pump it up a little bit to make it more powerful or impressive. And that's placing our confidence in the wrong place. It's being shaped by the world rather than shaped by the cross. I mean, Paul himself had a pretty impressive resume, if you know Philippians 3, and yet he writes, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So have you ever noticed how starry-eyed the evangelical church gets sometimes when celebrities are Christians? Let me be careful here. There's, it's not a bad thing, and the Lord can use it, so I'm not knocking it as if it's all bad, but sometimes I think we can put our hope or our confidence in the wrong thing, like, well, if we get thus and such a speaker to this event, then people will come to Christ because this person has a name. I mean, in college, I remember I was on the golf team for a couple years, 95, 96, 96, 97, and I had a conversation with my golf coach talking about Tiger Woods. This was like right when he was like coming out of the gate like crazy, nobody playing like this guy, rookie of the year, you know, sportsman of the year, you know, won the Masters at 21. And I remember him saying, imagine what would happen if someone like him became a Christian. Okay, the Lord could use that, but you know what? <laughs> Juxtapose that with this, this woman. I, I knew this woman kind of not really well, but I knew of her. She was the mother of a, a friend of mine, and she was nearly blind. She was socially awkward. 
But she was a bold, authentic, unashamed witness, and she led countless people to Jesus. So sometimes I think we think we need to be like Ravi Zacharias or Tim Tebow or something. Again, I'm thankful for both of those guys. Like, we need to be those guys or nothing's going to happen. No, the power is not in your smarts or your position or your platform, although, again, God can use those. Don't hear me knocking that. The power's in the gospel. Where do we put our confidence? Where do we put our hope? We dare not put more trust in human position or platform than in the power of the gospel. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs, power. Greeks seek wisdom. They were kind of like, you know, refined culture. They want to see wisdom, you know, impressive philosophical wisdom. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called. That's what makes the difference. Both Jews and Greeks. Christ is, he becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God because the quote-unquote foolishness of God, this quote-unquote foolish path of salvation, this foolish Savior is actually wiser than men. The weakness, quote-unquote, of God, this weak path of the cross is actually stronger than men. So do you see, do you see that decisive factor? It's the calling of God, the power of the gospel, not our earthly impressiveness that makes all the difference. Worldly somebodyness is not the source of our life. Christ is our life. God's the source of our everything through Christ. You were called. We're nothing without him, and we have everything in him. So there's no haves and have-nots, there's no divisions of those who are in and out in the kingdom of Christ. There's no first and second class citizens in Jesus' kingdom. There's no reason to boast. There's no reason for divisions. There's no, this is my tribe and my tribe's better than your tribe. The cross kills pride and factious selfishness. And the cross raises humility and unity to life. That's the cruciform living that God's calling us to. So let's pray that he will produce it in us. Let's pursue that. Let's just lay aside all the worldly values that would get in the way, and let's drink in and embrace these values and be shaped by the cross. Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your amazing grace. You are the source of our life in Christ Jesus. It's because of you that we are in him and he is everything to us. So I pray that we would be a people that humbly boast in you, boast in the cross. And I pray that that humility together at the foot of the cross would produce a beautiful, strong, substantial unity that radiates your grace to this world that's just filled with factions and divisions. We pray it for the sake of Jesus. Amen.